the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. And the very presence of God, this is an amazing concept, the very presence of God indwells us. Now, there's another step of God's presence beyond indwelling, and that's the power of the Spirit. That's Acts 1 and 2. But the main point here, this is the main takeaway is that what man lost in the Garden of Eden, God has now recaptured. And the very presence of God now indwells each of these disciples and every single person since then who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. While Jesus was on earth, it was easy for his disciples to point their lives back to him. They could see and touch him, hear his wise words, and watch his miracles take place. Even after Jesus rose from the grave, they had the opportunity to continue learning from the Lord in person. But Jesus didn't stay forever. He went back to heaven. Yet as Pastor Gary will remind you today, Jesus didn't abandon his followers. He gave the Holy Spirit to dwell within each believer, including you, if you put your faith in Christ. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John chapter 20 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So as we come to the uh, closing last chapter and a half here, we ended in the middle of chapter 20 last week. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has conquered sin and death and the grave. And uh, he has only appeared at this point where we left off around verse 19. He's only appeared at this point uh, to uh, the women who have gone to the tomb to to embalm, if you will, the body of Jesus. It is early Sunday morning, the first day of the week. This is the first opportunity that the ladies have had to go to the tomb because prior to that, it was Saturday the Sabbath. Friday was a special Sabbath, being the first day of unleavened bread on the Jewish calendar. So this is the first opportunity that the ladies have to go and to embalm his body, basically to apply spices and herbs. Uh, in addition to what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did, these ladies are going to now finish what the men couldn't really do that right, I suppose. But anyway, as they go there and they are ready to attend to the body of Jesus, of course, they get the startle of their life, and that is that his body is not there. And when uh, Mary in particular, Mary Magdalene, uh, is confronted by two angels here at the scene of the tomb, she then realizes um, that something very miraculous has happened. She turns to leave the tomb, and she's confronted by Jesus himself. She doesn't recognize him at first. She takes him to be the gardener. The Bible does say that the tomb was in a garden area. And so assuming that he's the gardener, she says, if you know where they've put 
uh, my Lord's body, could you give it back? And when he calls her by name, Mary, that's when the light bulb goes off and she calls him Rabboni, which is actually a more respectful, a higher form of rabbi. Rabbi means teacher, Rabboni means master. And she realizes that he is, in fact, the Lord Jesus risen from the dead. And he tells her to go and communicate this good news to his disciples. And as I mentioned last week, this was a very unusual thing. Because in the first century, a woman's testimony was not admissible in a court of law. They were considered an unreliable source. But what makes the gospel so amazing is is that if if this weren't true, you know, this would be the wrong way to go about it. Um, and, and the fact is that what, what Jesus does here and what the Lord does in general is he defies common, you know, natural way of thinking by calling a woman to be the first eyewitness testimony of the risen Lord Jesus. She is the one, Mary Magdalene, who will go back and communicate this to the disciples. So, you know, if you were going to write a, a, a fake story, you know, about the resurrection and you were going to try to sell it, it wasn't real, but you, you know, you're this follower of Christ and it isn't real, but you're going to try to sell this. So Jesus, he rose from the dead, you know, and, and you would never have asked a woman to be the first eyewitness. This actually, by defying the conventional wisdom of the day, is evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because this wouldn't be the natural way to go about it. But nevertheless, this is what God does here, and he uses Mary Magdalene. What a high privilege, what a wonderful honor of being the first eyewitness of the risen Lord and communicating this to his disciples. And of course, you know, they're skeptical at first here. And, and so that's where we left off in verse 18, where it says, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Well, verse 19 says, on the evening of that first day of the week, all right, so this is still Sunday, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom. He says, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, John doesn't talk about the skepticism of the disciples, but we know from the other gospels that when Mary tells them this news, they know they don't believe her. They don't really believe her at first. But here it is now Sunday, still first day of the week, the day that Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene. And they have gathered here. Now, I want you to note this because we're going to see later in the same chapter that also they are meeting again on the first day of the week. What happened in church history between the Sabbath, which still is and remains Saturday, to becoming Sunday, the day when predominantly the Christian church, the Protestant Christian church, worships the Lord Jesus? Why don't we still worship Him on the Sabbath on Saturday, as our Seventh-day Adventist friends do? And the answer is because when you see what church history started to do, they began to gather and to meet on a weekly basis to continually commemorate the Sunday resurrection day of Jesus Christ. So they have gathered here on this day, and the Lord appears to them, and he says, peace be with you. And they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, verse 21, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So he's about to commission them to carry on the message. 
And with that, this is interesting, he breathed on them, circle that word breathed on them, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone who sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So interesting scene here where Jesus breathes on them, and it says that they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, underline that verse, because we're going to get back to that when we get into the book of Acts next week, and we look into chapters 1 and 2. It's, it's interesting, because here Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. I have to believe that because Jesus initiated this, that they actually did receive the Holy Spirit at this point. But it's interesting when we get to Acts 1.8, Jesus says, Terry in Jerusalem until the gift my Father has promised comes to you, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So wait a minute, I thought, he, I thought they got the Holy Spirit here in John chapter 20, but there's something more before Jesus ascends to heaven that he says to them regarding the Holy Spirit. That's next week's study. And that's really the majority of the book of Acts, because the focus is on now the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, that third part of the Trinity whom, whom the Lord gives unto us, to be empowered to continue his good work of the church in communicating the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's later, but I I want you to remember this verse because next week we're going to refer to it again. Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. For all intents and purposes, this is the point at which his disciples believe and become, if you will, born-again believers. Because up until this point, you know, they had an understanding um, maybe not a complete understanding, but they had a general understanding about Jesus. They certainly identified him as Messiah, the Son of God, but they were bewildered by the whole crucifixion thing. They were confused about, you know, the death of Jesus. They are for the first time seeing the resurrected Lord. And when they behold him, they put their faith and trust in the resurrected Lord Jesus. Christ's work on the cross, it is finished, he says, to telestai. It is finished, it was finished, it will always be finished. And the disciples now are believing in Jesus and his finished work. And to that end, Jesus then breathes on them, they receive the Holy Spirit. Now that word breathe in the Greek language, because the New Testament was originally written in Greek, is the Greek word emphaseo. We get our, our English, our medical term, if you have emphysema, you can't breathe, you have a problem breathing right? It's a disease of the lungs. That is the same word. This is interesting for those of you who like these little bits of information. In Genesis, the Old Testament, of course, was written predominantly in Hebrew, but there was a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, and the Greek Old Testament is called the Septuagint. In the Greek Old Testament of Genesis 2-7, when it says that God formed Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed in him the breath of life, Genesis 2-7. When it says he breathed in Adam, it is the same word, emphaseo. It is the same word in the language. He breathed into Adam the breath of life. Our English Bible is a singular, but in Hebrew it is hayim. It is plural. It is the breath of lives because God is one God, but he is in, reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the fullness of God was breathed into man when Adam was created out of the dust of the earth. Okay, But what man forfeited in the garden when he sinned, He forfeited, if you will, that presence, that breath of God. Sin separated mankind from God. The breath of the presence of God was breathed into man when Adam was created, but because of sin, 
man forfeited that present experience in the presence of God. And what man forfeited in the Garden of Eden, God has restored here in the upper room in John chapter 20. When he breathed into them the breath of life. And now to all who believe and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we then recapture what was lost in the garden by virtue of the sin of humanity. Where Jesus now comes into our lives when we put our faith and trust in him who died on a cross. And the very presence of God, this is an amazing concept, the very presence of God indwells us. Now, there's another step of God's presence beyond indwelling, and that's the power of the Spirit. That's Acts 1 and 2. But the main point here, the main takeaway is that what man lost in the Garden of Eden, God is now recaptured. And the very presence of God now indwells each of these disciples and every single person since then who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Okay, You receive the very presence of God into your life. That is what is happening here. They become born-again believers. The presence of the Lord comes into them. He breathes on them. And then he says something to them that has become a controversial verse here in verse 23. And some circles of the church have taken this, I believe, way out of context. But it says, Jesus said, verse 23, If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Do not be confused here. Jesus is not giving authority to Christians to begin to declare by looking at another individual's life whether or not they are forgiven or unforgiven, whether or not they are saved or not saved. Now, you will hear that taught in some circles of the church, uh, particularly in the Roman Catholic Church, in, in high Episcopal churches, where, where the title is a vicar of Christ. Someone who stands as a vicar of Christ, V-I-C-A-R, is one who stands in the authority of Christ and that pastor or that priest is able to declare to you that you, your sins are forgiven as if they have personal power or, or authority to absolve you of your sins. That is not what Jesus is saying here. In the original language it reads, whosoever sins you forgive have already been in a condition of being forgiven. And then vice versa, whosoever sins you, you do not forgive have already not been in a condition of being forgiven. I know it's, it's a little wordy there, but in other words, all it is saying to us is that heaven declares those things, not you and me. Heaven declares whether or not someone has been forgiven or whether someone has not been forgiven. What he's saying here is that based on who Christ is, you can confidently present the gospel to somebody and tell them, if you accept Christ as your Savior, your sins will be forgiven. Now, I don't forgive you of your sins. You don't forgive another person of their sins. But you were able to declare that confidently based on the authority of Scripture. Hey, Jesus Christ has died for us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Who gives you the authority to declare that? Well, I'm just quoting Scripture to you. That if you confess your sins and come into a right relationship with Jesus, you can have your sins forgiven. I don't declare that. That's what God has declared. I'm just passing on the information. In the same way that if someone says, I don't want to accept Jesus. I refuse to accept Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in the Bible. Then you can likewise say, well, then your sins aren't forgiven. Until you confess your sins to Christ, your sins are not forgiven. So that's what he's saying here. We have to be very careful. He's he's not saying that the church is wielding the power and the authority to declare someone personally 
Oh, I'm looking into your heart and saying, you know, you're not forgiven. And you think, that's a very dangerous thing. We don't stand in the place of Christ and make those judgment calls, okay? That is reserved for heaven. But we can communicate the good news of the gospel and on that basis say, this is how you can have your sins forgiven, or this is how you will not be forgiven if you reject him, okay? So that's what he's summarizing there. Now, he appears to Thomas here, and I love this story with Thomas because Thomas is a good old boy. He's just a down-to-earth guy. There's no pretense here. He's, he's, you know, he's been labeled from church history, doubting Thomas. The poor guy's got a label. One day when we get to heaven, we're going to go, oh, you're that guy. But unfortunately, it's kind of tagged on to him. But, um, but I, I like him because, you know, I'd rather someone say, you know, I just don't get this. And to have the Lord reveal himself to that person in a powerful way, then, then for someone just to accept it and, and, but the whole time they're thinking, you know, I don't really believe this, but you know, I'll just, I guess it's the thing to do. You know, I mean, there's some peer pressure here. You're, you're one, Judas is gone now, but you're one of the 11 and everybody else around you is like, yeah, we believe in Jesus. And you, it would be easy for you to go, yeah, I, I wasn't there, but yeah, I believe him too. And Thomas is this guy who's like, you know what? I gotta, I gotta see some stuff. I'm just that kind of way. So here we go. Verse 24. Now Thomas called Didymus. Didymus is, is a, from a Greek word meaning twin. So he's got a twin. We don't know who the twin is, but he's, he's a twin. Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, now notice this here, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. So here's the pattern. It's Sunday again, a week later. And they're beginning now, and you'll see it in the book of Acts too. They begin to continue to gather together and to worship on that same day, that Sunday, in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus. So they're meeting again a week later, and Thomas this time is with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Now before we read what he says here, this is the second time that Jesus has appeared suddenly, even though the doors were locked, because that's what it said back up in verse 19, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood among them. Same thing, doors are locked, because, you know, it's still not all that popular to be identified with Christ. I mean, he, he was just recently killed and crucified, so you're, you're playing it safe, and they're in a room, they're like, you know, we got to figure out what to do here, and all of a sudden, boom, Jesus appears among them. So it tells us, gives us some insight into the glorified body that Jesus had. When he rose from the dead, he was able to defy the laws of gravity and the laws of, of matter because even though the doors are locked, the implication here, both of these verses together is Jesus was able to just kind of walk through the walls and walk through the door and come right into their midst. It's kind of a sci-fi thing. It's kind of freaky, but it's a great thing. Those of you Trekkies, I mean, that's a really old term, but you're going to beam me up. I want this power, and that's what you're going to get because guess what? The Bible says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, it says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Philippians 3, 21 says, who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So the Bible says we get a glorified body just like Jesus, and we will not be hindered or limited to time or space or matter. That will be awesome. (laughs) You just will be able to go wherever you want, whenever you want, however you want, and nothing will hold you back. No more getting the pat down from TSA. All right? 
Can you relate to that? No more getting the pat down from TSA. You won't have to get an airplane anymore because it's just going to be, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. By will, this is going to be great. (laughs) And I suppose you also have, of course, the perfect body too, you know, because a glorified body ain't going to be sagging. You know what I'm saying to you? (laughs) I mean, you know, what will everybody's glorified body be? All we can understand from Scripture basically is this. We will still be recognizable, okay? It's not like you get a completely different look and nobody knows who you are. You're going to see here in the story the disciples are a little bit like, is that really Jesus? Because some of it is their own shock and amazement, okay? But he still looks like as he has been, but it's a glorified body now. <laughs> but, but, you know, look, uh, some people have wondered, what will we all be a universal age you know, and will we all never have another, of course, you'll never have another physical ailment. You'll never have another problem. You'll never have anything physically because your glorified body now will not, will not function the same way it does now. And some have speculated, we don't know this, but some have speculated that kind of the universal age, because this is, you know, the, the ancient rabbis believed that Adam, when he was created, was around 30 years of age. Here we have Jesus, who is crucified around 33. There is some thought that the, that the universal age will be like a 30-year-old person. So, which is really good news if you're like 80, all right? Not so good if you're like 17. But anyhow, we don't really know. But anyhow, but, but, but this is an amazing thing here because Jesus just, you know, and suddenly he's, he's among them. Like, whoa, where did you come from? And so here he is with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They're in the same statement, Shalom. And then he said to Thomas, so he, he goes right up to Thomas, and he says to him, I can't believe you didn't believe in me. <laughs> now, wouldn't that be twisted if Jesus was just like, Thomas, I've heard about you. I showed up here last week. You weren't even here. All right? And you didn't believe in me. Well, that's too bad because I was here and you weren't. So off with you. You know, I mean, can you imagine Jesus with an attitude? Of course not. What he does here is something very gracious. What does he say? He says, he says, well, go ahead and put your fingers here. See my hands. So he's showing the wounds from the crucifixion. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. So where Jesus was pierced in the side and the wounds from the nail marks in his hands. And by the way, someone once said that the only man-made thing in heaven will be the marks of the crucifixion. Because Jesus still bears those marks. In fact, in the prophet Zechariah, it talks about when the Lord Jesus returns after the period of the tribulation and the Lord Jesus returns to the earth and his footsteps upon the Mount of Olives and it splits it from the east to, from north to south and creates a valley from east to west that the Jews will look on the one that they have pierced and they will ask, where did you receive these marks? And he will answer, I received these wounds at the house of my friends. And that Jesus, even when he returns, will bear the marks of his crucifixion. It's very interesting. But Jesus go, says to Thomas, go ahead, put your, put your, feel the wounds here. And when he does, and, and Jesus then exhorts him, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know that old expression, seeing is believing. And that's basically what he says to Thomas. Seeing is believing. But he says, Thomas, everyone after you, which includes us here, the motto is different. It's not seeing is believing. It's believing is seeing. Because when you exercise faith and you believe by faith, because we can't see Jesus, 
You know, unless he were somehow to miraculously appear, which he can do anything he wants, but it's not like he's going to show up and give us the same opportunity to test the empirical evidence. So therefore, we have to, by faith, believe. And in believing, our eyes are open and we see. And Jesus even says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The Gospel of John is an interesting take on the life of Jesus. He was absolutely a man who experienced things as a human, but he's also God. And so because of that, he's able to do things that are unthinkable to the average human. But it's clear to see through this book that Jesus is anything but average. He's the Son of God. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus and what he's done for you? Perhaps you'd like some prayer support in what you're learning or growing in. If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find out service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and even download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of John that may be life-altering for you. We look forward to you joining us again for our next edition here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Listen, truth opens up your eyes General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.